You're listening to the Rugged Legacy Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Putnam. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Rugged Legacy Podcast. Today, I'm joined with Franklin Brown, who is the sociopathlete. And I'm not exactly sure exactly what that means. I know he's a bit on the sociopathic side, which I think that's why we get along so well. But uh, Franklin, thanks for coming on the show, brother. Well, hey, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's good to, good to spend some time, and I'm gonna I'm gonna join you in drinking. This is a little bit of whiskey, and and I I just got this idea like five minutes ago from our friend Roman McClay, who takes his airborne tablets and uh, mixes them up with his whiskey, so that you know now now I'm uh, virus proof. So, I dig that. Cheers. Well. You know how they say uh, ground shark coffee has antiviral properties. I'm sure it does. And that's what I, this is here. And it's mixed with Macallan 12-year-old scotch. Even better. So I'm not sure about the vitamin C, but all the uh, uh, random vitamins and things that go into coffee, I think we'll be all right. Yep. Yep. Not too worried about it. So what does sociopathly mean? I, I've read a little bit on your site. Um, but I'm just curious as to if you could break it down for everybody. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you the, uh, the reader's digest history of the term. So when, um, a few years back, Sarah Beth and I wanted to actually start a t-shirt company and I technically, we still have the t-shirt company. We just don't sell very many t-shirts. Um, and so we, we wanted to come up with a clever name for it and, you know, I, I wanted it to have something with meaning, something to you know, talk about. Um, you talk about some of the great brands in history, like Nike gets their their brand name is from like the Greek goddess of victory or something like that. You know what I mean? So like it's, it's evocative. It, it makes you think of something. Um, and all the, the, the one word names are all pretty much spoken for at this point. So what a lot of companies have done recently is they've taken two words and mashed them together. And it usually helps if grammatically the, the words mash together, beginning and ending and so forth. So uh, we're just brainstorming at a kitchen table and then just, you know, hey, sociopath, elite, you know, like athlete, sociopath, that kind of thing. And then I started thinking about it on a deeper level and, you know, wrote the whole manifesto for looking at like, what does it mean to be, you know, a sociopath, you know, somebody it's, it's a, it's a personality disorder or it's considered a personality disorder, um, you know, where one fails to conform to social norms and is considered reckless, impulsive, aggressive, and, and without remorse. And I'm like, that's actually pretty apt for, um, for who I am. I'm not like entirely without remorse or anything like that, but I started thinking about the, the overall philosophy that, um, that tends to make people successful, but unpopular because that you're not, you're not really considered, um, proper or socially acceptable in a lot of ways. If you're, if you're successful, because you don't, you don't, become successful being like everybody else you become successful doing what other people won't do or can't do or think is too crazy to do um and so the the concept was like okay 
athleticism is typically thought about as a physical endeavor. Um, but I've sort of expanded it around the idea of like, okay, sociopathleticism is somebody who is making a habit or making a lifestyle of being contrarian, but not just for the purposes of being contrarian, but for the purposes of being successful, of being exceptional. And a lot of times exceptionalism looks like barbarism to some people. So uh, that's kind of where it came from. And, and I've actually explained, expanded the idea to the point where I'm, I'm writing a book about it. Okay. So, you know, I'll, I'll have a, my first nonfiction book will be titled uh, sociopathleticism. And it's the, uh, it's, it's the, you know, kind of the, the philosophy of successful barbarians as told through history and legend, uh, okay. because most of the successful cultures in history were considered barbaric by everybody who didn't like them. Yeah. But, you know, they were they were successful. See, I like that. And I like how you were saying uh, that it's done uh, as being a contrarian, but not just for the sake of being a contrarian. There's a right. there is a means to that end, you know, and it, it seems almost like, you know, the means justify the end. And I'm inclined to agree with that to a certain point. Um, I. I've never been the kind that wanted to go and do what everybody else was doing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just because they were doing it. I, I had this problem since I was a kid. I, I wanted to be the one that would buck the system, even if the system was in my favor, just for the sake of bucking the system. And I had that problem for a long time. Well, I and think that kind I of think... evolved later on. Yeah, no, and I think young men are are, are supposed to be like that. Uh, you know, we talk about the, I think that's a big problem that we have today is that we don't have enough um, rebellious youth or, or being rebellious is not really rebellious anymore. And, you know, so, so what, what do the youth of today have to rebel against? What do they have to, to uh, object to really? Uh, you know, we live in the, the most comfortable state of being that, human society has ever known and it's i think that's the big struggle there is that every every generation that comes along wants something to fight against they want an enemy they want a cause and you know like there, there's the old james dean movie rebel without a cause you know that kind of thing and and that creates a problem because if you don't have an enemy you're going to manufacture it if you don't have a struggle you're going to manufacture it and you know we're, we're seeing that today you know I, we talk about all these uh these people that are you know modern day fans of marcus aurelius and other stoic philosophers and then the minute a real crisis hits they all go crying for big daddy government to solve their problems for them uh this is their crisis you know, for the millennial generation is like, this is, this is your struggle. Like, this is nothing. This is, this is kind of sad, but you, this gets back to my idea of like studying this philosophy through the example of history. So uh, I was actually about to write a, one of those long Twitter threads on this and I probably still will. Um, and then, you know, just tell people, Hey, you can, you can hear about this on, on Jeff's podcast, but you look at like the historical example of, 
all throughout, and, and I only go as far back as like a hundred years or so, because after a while you start to recognize the echo and you're like, okay, I get it. Here's the pattern. But like uh, in 1898 ish, I guess it was uh, Theodore Roosevelt was assistant secretary of the Navy. And, you know, his father, I believe was his father had fought in the civil war, you know, but there was no war for him. You know, there was nothing. He w- he was in the military. He was, he was in a, a cabinet position in the, in the, in the department of the Navy he was hot to trot for the Spanish American war. He thought for sure he felt he, he felt very strongly that, you know, Cuba should have independence. And he felt very strongly about, you know, going to war with Spain and, and, you know, he, he was pivotal in pushing the U S Navy to be prepared for that conflict. And, but he was, he put his money where his mouth was like he, as soon as we went to war with Spain, he resigned his post basically as, assistant secretary of the Navy, like he, he gave up his cush desk job, went out to, you know, Texas, Arizona, and all these other Southwestern states where the weather was hot, recruited a bunch of cowboys basically to be the Rough Riders, the first volunteer cavalry regiment, and then went to Cuba and, and kicked a bunch of ass, you know? And I mean, he got shot at, like he was, it was a legit thing. It wasn't just like he was, he was not just a, a field general in a tent. I mean, he was, he was in the middle of it. And, you know, that's just one example. His generation had something, they were dying to fight for something because their parents had fought in the civil war. They didn't have any. And, and they, they were too old war one when that came along. Example, world war one comes along and nobody has any idea how horrific that is in the first, in the opening months of that. All we know is that just millions and millions of Western men, you know, all throughout Europe were excited to go to this war. Like they were like, yeah, this is it. This is our, this is where we go and, and earn our stars, so to speak, you know, and, and get to go fight our big struggle and our big cause. And there was no good guys, bad guys in that war. I mean, every points at Germany as being the bad guy, but it was like, they were all going to fight sooner or later, you know, the industrialization of those nations and, and of their war machines, I mean, almost made it impossible for there not to be a fight. So they all thought they were fighting a good fight. And they got to fight that war. And then their kids got to fight World War II. And then, you know, that was the greatest generation. And then you had the boomers come along and, you know, they got stuck with Korea and Vietnam, which sucked. Like that was, that was a bullshit conflict. So they, they created more of their own conflict. You know, Vietnam wasn't enough. Korea wasn't enough. So they start the civil rights movements and they start all this counterculture, uh, you know, horseshit and, 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 you know, uh, abortion and women's rights and feminism and so forth. They're really into that. And then, you know, my generation comes along, Gen X, what do we have? Well, we've got 11. Well, it's kind of like, eh, it's not as good as, as World War One or two. And, and it's not as, as righteous. And, you know, yeah, we end up in war for 20 years after that. But we see the same thing that we're seeing today where we gave up a bunch of our rights and we went and kicked the shit out of two countries that probably had very little to do with the actual attack on the Twin Towers. And, uh, you know, because because our leaders at the time didn't have the balls to go after Saudi Arabia. So, you know, every generation has its, has its war and, you know, uh, the millennials and and Gen Z are like waiting for theirs. And so then this COVID-19 comes along and that's why you see so many people that are like, you know, excited, eager to stay at home and, and do their part and help. And it's like, that's gotta be the easiest conflict anybody's ever fought. 
because all your, your fight is to sit at home and snitch on your neighbors. That's your fight. Like you're not going to war. You're not picking up a gun. You're not getting shot at, you know, I mean, in my generation, you know, Pat Tillman gave up millions of dollars to go get killed by his own countrymen in Afghanistan sucked, but okay. At least he put his, his ass on the line. What, what is, what is this conflict doing for anybody? It's just sit at home and play video games, I guess. I don't know. So you talk about the rebellious of youth and the, and the need to buck the system. Like, okay, like that's what people are doing now, but they're not bucking it in a healthy way. They're just wrecking the economy and, you know, telling on their neighbors. See, I don't know if the ones that are so eager to sit at home and, you know, waste away and do what big daddy government says. I don't think those are the ones bucking the system. I think the ones who are bucking the system, you know, are like you, you know, like me, I refuse to go buy a fucking mask. I'm not going to make a fucking mask. I'm not going to not go to the store. I'm not going to not go to my pipe and cigar shop where you've got 15 old dudes drinking scotch and tequila and smoking, you know, right there in the lobby, watching the barber smuggle clients in through the back door. I, I tell you what, man. I mean, you can see my hair is getting a little shaggy. I wish I could find a barber that would do that. I was telling Sarah Beth that yesterday. I'm like, if I could find a barber that's open right now, he'd have a customer for life. But you're yeah. right. You're right. The, that That's where the counterculture needs to emerge. And I hope to see it. Uh, I'm seeing it with some older folks. I, I haven't seen a lot of young people like speaking out and saying this bullshit we're done. Like we're going to go, I guess we saw a little bit of it. You know, the whole, the people were yelling at the spring breakers for going out and partying in, at Daytona when they should have been locked down. And, uh, and then it came out like, yeah, none of those guys actually got sick. You know, like, like that's a little bit of what we need to see. We need to see a lot more of it. What I want to see is, is a lot more of these high school college age kids just getting together and just, you know, saying, Hey, fuck the police, man. Like, like, what are you going to do? You can't arrest all of us, you know? And that's what I want to see, but it's not, it's not happening yet. Well, you know, um, there's this whole thing, you know, every generation screws up their kids. Yep. You know, we, we start off with, you know, for example, the boomers, they screwed us up because after they came along, you know, my dad was born in 43. He fought in Vietnam and uh, he, you know, while he died, you know, when I was, you know, before I was, you know, kindergarten age, uh, due to Agent Orange and some other complications with that shit. But it seems like that entire, gen my entire generation, we all came from this just do whatever the fuck you got to do kind of, you know, place. And then a lot of our generation raised their kids under this. Uh, do what I said because I said so kind of, uh, you know, frame of parenting. And so now, you know, like my oldest son's 21 and you see a lot of his peers are going, well, the government said we have to. And I'm wondering if it's because, and Hunter Drew got me thinking about this with his uh, blog post, you know, and the, uh, the hive and bee mentality thing that he did about, you know, you're raising government drones if you raise your kids with this attitude of do what I said because I said so and not explaining a why behind anything. Right. And so I think maybe a lot of the ones we see now that are so 
eager to comply with a government mandate of you can't go to church or you can't go to the barber or whatever are more the ones who came from those type of parenting situations where it was just do what I said because I said so. Right. Yeah, I think it, it, it really depends on the situation. It depends on, I mean, there's generational impacts to all this stuff. When I was a kid growing up, my my old man, I was the oldest of six kids, and my old man sent me to a summer camp in Maine. I grew up in Maryland. He sent me to summer camp in Maine for like eight weeks in the summer when I was like seven years old or something. I mean, he just, which you wouldn't do today. Like, you wouldn't take a kid under the age of 10 and send him away for two months at a time a thousand miles away. Like, that's unheard of. And even today, I tell people that are my age, like, yeah, I did this when I was a kid. And I used to go on, you know, month-long Boy Scout trips and so forth. Like, like, really? Your parents let you do that? But my dad was very much a cut the apron strings as early as freaking possible type guy. Um, so I didn't know any different than to try to raise my kids that way. Now, their mother didn't always agree. Um, fortunately, my daughter, my son is just like me and my daughter is the most headstrong teenage girl you've ever met. Like she'll, she'll argue over the color of Doritos if she's got nothing better to argue about. Like she doesn't care. She just wants to argue and it's a pain in the ass sometimes, but then at the same time, it's like, I can't tell her to do something and just say, just do it without getting an argument from her. So in a way I was forced to, to explain the why of things, not because I wanted to, or because I was a good parent, because I had a pain in the ass kid that would like, wouldn't let me get off the hook with that. So in a way, I guess I kind of lucked out in that regard. Cause I, you know, those are the two kids I had. And like I said, my son was, he was, he's a lot like me. He just wants to do his own thing. And, you know, he, I, I don't worry about him carving his own path and my daughter, you know, definitely not but also she's just she loves to fight she's just got that in her blood i don't know what it is but she'll just she just she just loves to fight so that's that i think helps a lot but i don't know i can't speak to the rest of their generation you know i've seen i've seen some i've seen some reason to have hope that you know these these zoomers as they call them and the gen z might be a little more independent thinking than the millennials that came before them. Um, but I don't know yet, you know, like I said, I'm waiting to see, you know, a, a massive gathering of young people in a major city in America where they're just like, yeah, you know, we were supposed to have this rave and they told us they were going to cancel it, but we just showed up anyway or whatever, you know, finds like, I saw a little bit of it today. We were out driving around and there's a, a, a couple places where, these guys are just showing up in the parking lots of uh, sh shopping malls for car shows, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, that that's probably not what they would call social distancing. That's good to see. Like I want to see people push back against this stuff. And until we see that, I'm going to be very concerned about the character of our, of our nation because we should not be just sitting down and rolling over for what we're being told to do here. Yeah. And you know, I, I'm not the kind of guy that wants to go out and just destroy the system. But at the same time, I don't want to see people become so complacent with just doing what they're told because that's dangerous. It is. It is extremely dangerous. 
I mean, if, if everybody just falls in line, does what the government tells us to do, then there's no limit to what the government can tell us to do because we'll always do what they say. Right. You know, I, I can't remember doing what my parents told me without a fight. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's, most it's, of us it's, were it's like weird that. To, yeah. But it's weird to see so many people just going take, I, I saw it today on Twitter. One guy actually spelled out. He said, I would rather uh, throw away my civil liberties than die. Yeah, which is like, it. yeah, see, it's the polar opposite of Patrick Henry, you know, give me liberty <laughs> or give me death. You know, it, 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 we've completely flipped the script on it. Now, like I said, maybe it's not that way across the board, but I see a lot of it. And that, that alarms me because that's not what this country was founded on. You know, it was, um, it was founded on, on rebellion. I mean, we, we were, we're the result of rebellion, you know, yeah. our ancestors, you know, rebelled. That's why we're here. So, you know, that, that we, you know, we, we kind of forgot a little bit of that, I think. Well, you know, everybody tries to say that America doesn't have a culture. Our culture is revolution. Yep. Our culture is to, you know, give the middle finger to the man that's what we are you know founded upon we all we, we told a king to go fuck himself right you know and yeah no that's and that should be the american culture it's like okay we should be that we at least up until recently we were known as as the rebellious pain in the ass country that liked to fight you know and that's because that's who ended up here you know, is the rebellious pain in the asses that like to fight. They, they, they landed here because they, nobody else wanted them, right. you know, and then, and then, you know, like you said, we, we rebelled against the King, which was the most advanced military force in the world at the time. And a bunch of crazy redneck jackasses managed to kick their ass. I mean, circumstances helped out a little bit there, but for the most part, it was, you know, it was just sheer will and tenacity that got got the country off of, off the ground. And and to think that now constitutional rights are getting trampled all over the place. You know, where you're being told you can't even go to church if you stay in your car. And we're all okay with this. So yeah, you know, to me it just feels a little bit. And I don't want to go on this conspiracy theory thing, but it feels like a beta test. Oh, it absolutely does. It absolutely does because I think, I think the people in charge know exactly how dangerous the the threat really is, meaning that it's not really that dangerous at all, and they're doing their best to suppress the information about that, and then spread disinformation about how dangerous they want you to think it is. You know, they they share pictures of Hard Island and like, oh, look at all these mass graves in New York City. And I'm like. They've been doing that for decades. That's been, nothing they've new. Been, they've been doing it for a century. You know, so there's a place yeah. 45, 45 minutes down the road from me where it's just it's a mass grave depot for people who get, you know, sick and die, and they have no next of kin or they're right. homeless, nobody to claim the body and bury them. Hey, I in in the cities they they cremate them and then right. put them in these giant mausoleum type places in the public cemeteries. Right. I mean, it, it varies from every city handles it differently. You know, my, I, I mean, my first wife, when 
she's not the mother of my children, but uh, she's, she passed away, drug overdose. And nobody, it's not that they didn't have anybody to claim her body. It's that she didn't have any relatives left to pay for it. So she's a cadaver now, (laughs) you know, like it's an unpleasant reality, you know, but the reality is it costs you at least a thousand bucks to bury a body in this country. And a lot of people don't have it. So when that happens or when there's nobody around to pay for it or your family can't afford it, then that's where you end up. They throw you in a box and they put the box in the ground with other boxes. And it's really gruesome. I mean, like a hard, they didn't show the part where they show all the, uh, the stillborn babies and how they end up there. Because right. a lot of parents that have a stillborn child won't pay for a formal funeral. They still got to dispose of it. So there's, there's, there's a whole section there of like little shoebox size coffins that get stuck in the ground. Yeah. It's unpleasant. Nobody, but, and that's the thing is like, we've, we've created this society where people don't know that this exists and they don't, they aren't aware of this reality. They don't think about, you know, what happens when you die. You know, I mean, I've had relatives who died and didn't have a will and then their kids are fighting over what's left. And it's like, well, why didn't you think about this? Well, because nobody wants to think about it. And like these modern day Stoics that, you know, carry these memento mori coins around, they think about what actually happens when you die. Like, have you actually thought about that? You know, and nobody knows, nobody knows. We've, we've sheltered ourselves from that so well that somebody shows a picture of it on TV and it's like, Oh my God, look at this. And I'm like, yeah, that's how it's always been. They, they have to have these because there's a lot of people out there that, that die, unfortunately, without a loved one or without the means to properly bury them. And the public pays for it to go in this big hole in the ground. And I'm sorry that you didn't know that before, but that's always been like that. So, you know, deal with it. And then, you know, nobody talks about the, the other cases here where like the Diamond Princess cruise ship where it's a cruise ship full of people that got COVID, but they don't talk about how only 20% of the people got it. You're locked in a cruise ship for two months because they got quarantined. They wouldn't let them off the boat. They kept them on the boat while they were on docked in and they were testing everybody multiple times throughout the whole quarantine to see who's getting it and who's not because they knew they had a perfect Petri dish. 80% of the population is already immune to this bug. Right. Okay, so that's that's to begin with. And then, you know, the, the numbers don't lie. Like, you're, you're not going to die from it unless you're already going to die anyway. Out. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's cruel to say, like, out loud, like, well, you're probably going to die this year anyway. But that's the reality of it. If, if this didn't get you, it was going to be the flu or it was going to be pneumonia or it was going to be a cold or whatever. Something else was going to get you. So this is just the name that they put on it now and it's freaking people out, but it's like, I don't it's think just it's really one of the facts. amalgam of things. It's just one of the amalgam of things that's out there right now. Yep. That was going to get you anyway, you know? Um, and yeah. there's, there's, a, there's, I would be very interested to see the results of an antibody test from someone who has never come into contact that they know of. Mm-hmm. with the coronavirus like somebody in the middle of you know dirt clawed nebraska right or whatever and who lives by themselves like the roman mcclay it'd be interesting right. to see if we tested roman mcclay and he had 
tested positive for the antibodies when he's not around humans. Right. Yeah. You know, just yeah, to I, see I, how long it's actually already been here. I think it's been here a while. I think it's why that it hit New York so bad. Um, because they're, they're looking at it now, but I think it was like, people are like, well, why isn't it this bad in, in LA or San Francisco? I mean, they've got just as many people and they've got all these homeless people. Like these people should be dying in droves. And the reality is that they're, they're pumping these numbers up uh, coming out of New York city, but New York city didn't get it right away. The West coast got it first. And I'm pretty sure we had it, you know, back in, you know, November, December, January, you know, cause, cause like Alexander Cortez was talking about this. Like, you know, he was like, I was dead ass sick in January or February. I got sick in, in, in February, like really bad. And I don't usually get sick and it was, you know, but all the symptoms were, were there, you know, I never got tested because it wasn't a thing, but now it's like, okay, well maybe this was, maybe this was already here and maybe the West coast already had it and it's just kind of running its way East now. And now that we're paying attention to it and we're testing for it more, we're seeing, you know, everybody likes to say, well, now America has more than, than China and America has more. Well, first of all, fuck China. Cause they're not telling you the truth, <laughs> uh, but, but the reality is why are our numbers high? Cause we we started testing faster than anybody else. Like nobody wants to give America credit for that, that like, okay, our testing program, we ramped that curve up way faster than anywhere else in the civilized world. I mean, it, it was astronomical how fast we got tests started. And so it's, it, it, it showed that we had more COVID than everybody like right away. Well, look how fast it spread in America. It's like, no, just look how fast we started testing in America. It's probably everywhere else just as fast. It's just, they're not testing. And a lot of countries have admitted that they're not testing, that they're just not, they're not going to bother. You know, because it, there's no point in it. You're yeah, either going to waiting get it. until someone shows up at the hospital with the symptoms right. and then go, "Okay, we got another one." Right, and you're either going to get it or you're not. I mean, you know, again with the historical context. So, you know, how did we cure the Spanish flu in 1918? It ran its course. It ran its course. We didn't. We didn't cure it. 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 Everybody got it for a year. You either got it and recovered, or you got it and died. Period. That was it. Those were your options, A, B. And after that, it was, it was done. Like, okay, now everybody's had it and everybody's immune to it. There was never any Spanish flu vaccine. There was never any Spanish flu cure. It was just you got the flu and you either dropped dead two days later or you pushed through and, and you made it. And that was, those were your well, options. We did the same thing with scarlet fever. Yep. And yellow fever and every other thing that's pretty much come through outside of, you know, polio and smallpox. We did vaccines for those. Right. But, you know, going back uh, to what we were saying, shift gears a little bit here. We were talking about the rebellious youth and how every, uh, every generation has their war or their conflict of sorts, whether it's an actual, you know, political size war or just something and and when you were talking about how you know every how everybody needs to have that rebellious streak and needs to have something to fight against do you see that coming as a part of just who we are you know 
as a species. We need to fight something because you can go out and you can look and you can see people who have never had to face any kind of adversity, who've never had to, you know, pull themselves out of some shithole of a situation. And these people are soft and they can't survive when things do get hard. I think as a culture, and I mean mostly Western culture, that is true only because we've we've kind of selectively bred for that. So, you know, it's like raising a dog. You know, you want to if you want to raise a dog that fights, then you raise generations of dogs that are hard asses and the toughest of them get to breed and the ones that aren't tough don't. And Western culture, especially American culture, has sort of selected for the rebellious sort. You know, they were the ones that that landed here in the first place. They were the ones that successfully opened up the frontier. They were the ones that successfully went to war, you know, whether it was, you know, the Civil War, Vietnam, or World War One or Two, whatever. So we kind of reinforce that, that trait. And I don't know how genetically that gets passed along. You know, I just, I, I know that it does. Well, the and, worst of us, the worst of us were... Uh, exiled by the British Empire because we just wouldn't conform. Right, right, and 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 it and it goes it goes multiple ways. I mean, like you look at the. My old man had a theory that the reason why, I'm going to piss off your Canadian listeners, but the reason why Canadians are so soft is they're all the ones that ran away from the war. You know, like that's where you went when you didn't want to go to Vietnam. And so now, you know, Canada is full of draft dodgers. I don't know if that's true or not. But the the point is, is that the American culture, most of Western European culture is like this, though. It goes all the way back to, you know, I, I mean, I'm Irish and British by by ancestry. And those people were forged by conflict. You know, they were constantly beset by, you know, Norse Viking invasions, you know, Roman invasions, like they were constantly under siege, you know, and most of Europe was constantly fighting, you know, it was just, it was just the way European culture was, is that there was just constant conflict from, you know, the days of the Greeks all the way through the Romans and so forth. And, and I just think that's what, that's what we selected for was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to breed generations of people that are prepared for conflict. And if you don't give them that conflict, they're going to find it. Like right. I, if the conflict doesn't come to them, then they're going to take it to somewhere else. And so that's why, you, you know, you either, you know, somebody declares war on you and you go to war or you, you go find somebody else to kick their ass, you know, one way or the other, you have to have that. Now, I think it's diminished over the years, especially in the latter half of the 20th century going forward, because there hasn't been that much conflict. So we've had a few generations to kind of soften up. We've had a few generations where we've let people be successful in a society that didn't have to fight for anything. You know, you got these guys like Bill Gates right now trying to get everybody to wear a microchip telling us if we have a vaccine, where did that guy ever fight? You know, he stole an operating system and then made billions of dollars on it. That's that's his success because society was soft enough to allow that to happen. You know, the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world and the Jack Dorsey's of the world, like we, or, you know, you look at these guys that like 
that got successful without having to actually fight anybody for it. They just had right. to be a little more clever and a little more devious. A little more and cunning and guile. Exactly, exactly. But we didn't, we didn't actually test for any real physical strength or any real courage. So, you know, I think that's, that's kind of, we sort of earned this, unfortunately. Like we built this society that, that allowed for this and now we're seeing what that gets us. So maybe to your point again, the best thing that could happen is, is for this mess to continue. And then like the guys that come out of it are the guys that, that rebel against it and say, Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm really tired of sitting at home. I'm going to go have a beer. Right. Yeah. You know, I think, I don't know. I think maybe there's some kind of predisposition in some people that they need something to push against to feel like they have a purpose. You know, I think that's why you see a lot of people that will jump from one cause to another um, because they seek that thing that's bigger than themselves right. to rally behind. And they, all growth is done through some, fo some form of conflict. You know, if you're growing in the gym, you're fighting gravity and you're fighting the weight and the yeah. struggle that happens and the chemistry that takes place because of all of that, you grow. Yeah. Um, you know, whether it's a hardship or poverty or a loss or a, an actual physical conflict, you grow in some sort of way due to that conflict. And I think maybe, and it's just a theory I have on the very limited research that I've looked at, is that there is a innate need to seek out conflict when we start to stagnate. Yes, I agree with that a hundred percent. And, and that's why, you know, we get frustrated with people that like to virtue signal and that like to jump on pet causes and so forth. But I always try to keep in the back of my head, like here is a person, they're usually young, they're just looking for a fight right. and they want it to be a righteous fight and they want to be told that they're righteous and they want to be told that they're fighting something worthwhile. So, I mean, maybe they're misguided in saying, Hey, we need to respect 47 genders, but their heart is in the right place. We went, we yeah. mustn't forget that much. I mean, right. They're looking a, for a fight. They're it looking for a fight. It, they we may not have like a it. particular fight to get behind that is worthwhile, but they're just seeking it out out of desperation. Well, and, and they've become, and that's why they've become so intersectional with their politics for it. Like they, they talk about how, well, if you're a civil rights person, then you have to be a trans right person or you, or whatever, because it's the same thing. And it's like, they want it to be the same thing, but it's really not. And that's why a lot of people that were in the civil rights movement reject that because they're like, no, wait a minute. You're not suffering the way we suffered back in the fifties and sixties. Right. It's not the same. And so you don't get to hitch your wagon to this, to this train here. You, 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 it's not the same, but they want it to be the same. And it's not out of, it's not because they're they're bad people. It's because they want a righteous cause to fight for, and they don't have one. And maybe this will be it. You know, I don't know. Maybe this will be the you know one of the things that they can say. Hey, you know what? We may disagree. You know, Democrat, Republican, whatever. We all agree. We want to be left alone. We want to be allowed to do what we want to do. We want to be allowed to go out and hang out with our friends and have a beer, and go to a movie, and not be told you know you can't ride the bus without wearing a mask. You know, so maybe that's it. I don't know. I have to I have to hope, but I haven't seen it yet. 
Yeah, I think a really good example is uh, if you look back to the past few years uh, on the political side of anything, uh, you see people who were screaming, like, for example, Antifa. Mm. They're screaming about uh, fascism and all this other. And, yeah, I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of, well, they were acting like fascists. Right. But there's people who were screaming about anti-fascism, uh, saying that uh, the president shouldn't be able to tell anybody what to do, yada, 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 are now the same ones who are screaming that people aren't listening to the government. Right. Again, it's they just trying to hitch their wagon to different causes because it's one's getting louder than the other and it's getting more notice and it's like an attention seeking kind of behavior. And that's the thing. I mean, I mean, it's always been that way, though. You know, we always want to be on the right side of things. We always want to be on the cause that everybody tells us righteous. And, and, you know, nations have used that very successfully as an effective motivating technique for for years. I mean, you look at all the propaganda posters that were published around World War One and Two, and that was all it was about. It was like, hey, we're fighting this great evil. Why haven't you volunteered? Why haven't you you know, donated your scrap metal? Why haven't you rationed your food? Why haven't you, you know, like it was sort of, you know, subtly and not so subtly guilting you into, into helping out with the cause. To be and, on the right side of history. Right. And, exa- and, but you know, the Nazis were doing the same thing, you know, they were saying, you know, Hey, this is, you know, you know, do this for the fatherland, you know, and, and this is the right thing to do and, and all this stuff. And, and everybody believed that. You know, and it, it's not until we have the, the kind of hindsight of that perspective where we can say, yeah, maybe that was a little off or maybe we should. I mean, you look at post 9-11, we were all excited to start bombing the crap out of somebody after the Twin Towers got blown up. I mean, I was just as gung ho about it as anybody else. You know, I wanted I'm like, we have the greatest military in the world. We need to go light somebody up right now in hindsight maybe we didn't light the right people up, you know, or maybe we could have won that war without firing a shot. You know, if we had told Saudi Arabia, like, Hey, you need to cough these guys up or we're not buying any oil. I'm sure they would have coughed those guys up, but the oil companies were in the politicians pockets. So that didn't happen, you know? Uh, but everybody who bombed us on nine 11 was Saudi. So I don't know, like, did we fight the right guy there? You know, I mean, I'm not saying we didn't kill bad guys, they were bad guys, but they weren't the right bad guys, right. you know? And, and so, you know, but we don't know that when we didn't know that at the time. And, you know, all, everybody talks about how, Oh, well, we were lied to about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And I'm like, I don't know that anybody lied. They weren't truthful, but there's a difference between being untruthful and telling a lie. And I think at the time, you know, people were looking for a smoking gun and they, they thought they found it. Now, did they deliberately lie because they were that eager to go to war or were they were just like, look, we have to, we have to find the villain here. You know, I mean, nobody will ever admit that they were necessarily wrong in that case, but I don't think the intent was, Hey, let's go set up an innocent country. And, and, and Saddam Hussein was not an innocent guy. Let's be clear about this. Like, like you can say, well, the WMDs weren't there. Okay. But he was, he was, plenty dickhead enough to deserve getting killed the way he did anyway you know like it, it's I mean, not if you're like complaining about mass graves on hearts island go look at the mass graves around baghdad exactly so it's not like you know it's not like okay yeah we we might have missed on that one but it wasn't like we missed so bad that we killed 
you know, Mother Teresa here. Okay. Right. It was like, these were who bad actually, guys. Who actually wasn't that great of a person to begin well, with. But. We can go down that rabbit hole some other time <laughs> if you want to. But, but, but the, the reality is, is that like, we didn't necessarily go right after the right guy. And it took us years, decades to get the right guy. And it, it didn't need to, but you and I sitting here in our comfortable homes now with the benefit of hindsight, we know that 20 years ago, we didn't know all this. Right. We didn't I, have all this information. Yeah, so I watched everything fall down on nine 11. And the first thing I did was call a recruiter. Right. I wanted to go kick someone's ass. But right. Again, exactly. There's no hindsight in that. That's all just. No, it's in the moment. You're like, okay, this right. is it. This in is the, the fight. We got to go, <clears throat> you know? And so it was just, um, yeah. And I see that a lot. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that we could see that. And that, that's why we study the history because I don't believe necessarily that history repeats itself, but I do believe that it echoes and I do believe that there's patterns to it. And I believe we can look at what we're seeing today. And at least in my own life, I can say, okay, I saw what happened after nine 11 and it wasn't all good. Like the Patriot act and the TSA and the DHS, those were not good things. We thought they were at the time. We thought we were doing the right thing, but now we look at it. It's like, that that kind of sucked and we shouldn't have done that and, and so you're seeing the same kind of thing here with the you're seeing the same of privacy with the whole covid right thing. and you're seeing the same thing it's like okay now google and apple want to put apps out there to tell people when you're not social distancing and and they want to run drones around that'll take pictures of people and register their temperature and say hey you might have covid so you can't be out here and it's i mean shit like this freaks me out a little bit like wait a minute and we're going to be okay with this Right. Like this is actually worse than what happened after nine 11 and it's not even as bad, you know? I mean, it's just, it's, it's kind of shocking to me that, that there aren't enough people around that are my age. I mean, I'm only 45 years old. I'm not an old man. And it's just weird to me that we haven't, we don't have enough people that are seeing this and saying, wait a minute, we got to pump the brakes here. This is a little crazy because the, the, the mortality rate that we see for the year 2020 will probably be less than what we saw in 2019 overall. We'll have less people dead because Likely. everybody stayed boxed up and there, there's no DUIs and there's no drunk drivers and there's nobody getting the flu. So, you know, now it's like, okay, all the people that were supposed to die for COVID, well, they're not dying and we're, we're, we're reducing our deaths overall anyway, because everybody's stuck at home. So yeah, no workplace accidents because nobody right. can go to work. Exactly. So, so you're going to see mortality rates, at least for the first few months of the year, are going to be way lower, which are going to impact the rest of the year. And so then we're going to look back on it and say, wow, we did all that. And we, we spent, you know, trillions of dollars in fake money and we crashed the, the greatest economy we ever had for what, you know, and, 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 and then on top of that, we, we implemented all these programs that invaded our privacy and those aren't going away. The Patriot Act never went away. Right. You know, TSA never went away. You know, Department of Homeland Security never went away. We, we're living with those now. Those are big government institutions that aren't going away. And that sucks. And I don't want to see that happen again, but it's going to happen again. So if we're going to have a rebellious youth get pissed off and start burning cities down over something, this needs to be it. But I don't know that it will be. Yeah, I agree. You know, you saw what I'd said. I said. I tend to look at things through the lens of, they can't arrest all of us. Right. And 100%. the problem is, is that 
I don't think that yet. Now it could there could be a tipping point. There could be our Boston massacre of this generation, right. where you know someone gets fed up and everyone is willing. But I think right now there's not enough people willing to be one of those that do get arrested. Right. Because things haven't gotten to the point of no return yet. Not yet, but you but know, I think it, if they do get there and we see an overstep of power, blatant and in your face, screw you, we'll do what we want kind of overstep rather than the soft handed baby talking that they've been doing. I think then, you know, like I said, our Boston massacre, our Waco, you know, I think you'll probably start to see it. Yeah, but even then, it's like the Boston Massacre was one thing. You know, Kent State Massacre was one thing. You know, those those were events that that triggered change. But you talk about Waco. Like, who was in charge at Waco? Right. You know? I mean, Janet Napolitano got elected governor here in Arizona after that. And then... And then Obama had her on his administration after that. That didn't hurt her career any. You know, the Clinton administration was in charge during Waco. Didn't hurt him any. And his wife got to run for president again after that. And she was supposed to win. You know, so I don't know that. I think something changed during the Clinton administration, during the Clinton years. He discovered something that was dangerous. And that was he got impeached and he decided not to retire or not to resign because he, he knew they didn't have the votes to kick him out. See, like Nixon resigned and he shouldn't have because what Nixon did paled in comparison to what Clinton did. Very much. And, and, and so, but because he valued the integrity of the office, he, and because the public valued the integrity of the office, he resigned and it was a big deal. And everybody thought Clinton was going to resign after what he did. And he didn't. And then he just kept on trucking through like nothing happened. And that set a very dangerous precedent. You know, nobody, nobody was held accountable for Waco. And nobody was held accountable for Whitewater or the Monica Lewinsky scandal or anything else. They just kept on moving through it. And that taught every politician after that, they're like, wait a minute. Slick Willie can do this, so can I. And so I don't know what it's going to take to be that light bulb moment for everybody. It, it's going to have to be pretty bad. I mean right. – and that goes in both directions. I mean, you know, politically speaking, like, you know, the gun control nuts have been screaming for years that, you know, something needs to, to be enough to ban guns in this country. Sandy Hook wasn't enough. The, the Las Vegas massacre wasn't enough. Nobody seems to give a shit, you know, because, you know, because it's like we're, we're not going to fight that war and win. Now, I'm, I'm grateful for that personally because I'm, you know, I'm a pro-gun guy. But the reality is what that tells me is that in either direction, nothing really moves the needle in this country enough to actually affect major change other than the government grabbing more power and invading in your space. Because I haven't seen it happen yet. I haven't seen any event, any of these horrible things happen in the last 30 years since I've been an adult that says, oh, this is a big deal and this is going to change stuff in a positive way. I mean, name something positive that the general public has forced the government to do in the last 30 years. Right. That's a good point. It, it's depressing, but it's, that's the reality of it. Well, it could just be that while I think, you know, 
as a society, we've probably become pretty numb to massacre and gore and things like that. Yep. You know, we're not clutching our pearls when we see someone gunned down in the street. Right. But you see a lot of people getting really pissed off when they're affected directly. And I think True. this could I think this could be what does it because a lot of people are being affected directly with, oh, you cannot buy this because we said so, or you cannot go here because we said so. People's livelihoods are being put at stake right now. Yep. And, and, and I'm with you. I, I hope that that's the difference. And I hope that that's the, that's the trigger point there is that, wait a minute, this was all well and good when I saw somebody getting shot on TV, or this was all well and good when I saw, you know, somebody getting beat up on TV. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what it's going to take because like Black Lives Matter, they got really pissed off over things like, you know, Trayvon Martin and so forth. And I'm thinking, where are these guys now? Like we could use this now. Like that's, that's what we need to see is like similar type of reaction, you know, Occupy Wall Street, you know, like those guys, like where are they now? You know, shit. Like I was, I was talking to somebody on Twitter earlier, like where are the scumbag attorneys now? Somebody should be filing class action civil rights lawsuits all over the place. There's money to be had here. You know, like, like a, a, a clever attorney could say, wait a minute, I can sue on behalf of everybody who's lost their job and I can sue the state of Michigan or I can sue the state of Florida or whatever. And, you know, I can, I can at least get a big settlement out of this. Why is that not happening? I'm, I'm waiting for that to happen. Like, okay. And, and people will, will mock this guy, but there's going to be some attorney who doesn't care. Some Scott Boras attorney who doesn't care if he's the bad guy, he just wants the money and he's going to file that lawsuit and say, Hey, COVID is bullshit. And you just put all these people out of work for no reason. And I'm suing you class action for that for, you know, $20 billion or something ridiculous. I want to see that happen. Or I want to see a bunch of people who got put out of work, go riot and burn down a few city blocks. Like I'd like to see that not because I'd like to see that, but because it would show that people give a shit. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> I agree. And yeah, I agree. And I think uh, I would like to see people go burn down some city blocks is probably the best place to leave it since we're crawling up on that hour mark here. And I'm running out of whiskey. And by the way, the, uh, the Roman McClay cocktail of whiskey and uh, effervescent airborne top shelf. Highly recommend it. I think I've got some in there. Uh, yeah. I would have to go eat some it. more hot wings because my, the pollen's kicking my ass again. Yeah, it's what I, it's, it's allergy season and I'm walking around and I, I walk through the Home Depot and I sneeze and people look at me like, oh, you know, <laughs> it's just like, dude, it's allergy season. Sorry. Yeah, so. we're getting the same thing here. But uh, yeah. uh, I really want to thank you for coming on, man. This, uh, well, thanks for having this me. Con this conversation didn't go in any of the ways that I thought it would. And I am grateful and disappointed. Because well, I really if, thought this was just going to be me and you screaming obscenities at the microphone trying to piss people off. Well, we can do that. Next time, let's have an agenda, and we'll have bullet points on, like, okay, at this point, Jeff screams in the microphone, and then we'll go from there. So, uh, you know, that's I'm – trying, I'm trying to be more like you. I've, I've been um, – my fiancé really dislikes the scorpions we have out here. So I'm, I'm running around in the dark in my underwear with a black light and a blowtorch. And every time I do, I'm thinking – you know, something amazing is going to happen here. I'm going to set fire to something that I shouldn't. And it's going to be a Jeff Putnam moment. And I'm going to wish I had it on video. So, uh, you're going to have to start streaming it, man. 
I, I think I need to. It's not, it hasn't been that interesting yet, but you know, I'm, I feel like, you know, maybe if I step it up a notch, get a bigger blowtorch or something, then I can make it a little more, uh, more user friendly as far as being interesting content. I agree. Cause so I keep, I keep checking over the window and those hornets haven't came back. So I don't know if I'm going to be able to repeat that magic anytime soon. No, that's that, that was a once in a time event. So we're lucky we're, it was filmed. We're fortunate for that. We can always look back on that. So, all right. Well, for you guys listening, watching, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for liking. If you are listening on Google Play or iTunes, leave a review. Those really help and help get the word out there. Uh, right now, we're looking at almost 4,000 downloads, which is pretty awesome considering the podcast is less than four months old. Uh, for everybody else, if you want to connect with the Sociopathlete, you can check him out on Twitter, at Sociopathlete. I believe it's the same on Instagram. And there'll be some links to his books uh, that are, well, his book, White Arrow, which is awesome, by the way. Never got around to that. But it is awesome. Yeah, I should have plugged the book, but I didn't, you know. Should have plugged the book, but there'll be a link right. to it in the show notes. You can get that on Amazon and uh, places to, where you can connect with and follow the sociopathlete will be in the show notes. Thank you all for listening. This is the 23rd episode of the Rugged Legacy podcast, and we're just going to keep them coming. So thank you all for listening, and y'all have a good night. Thank you for listening to the Rugged Legacy podcast. I hope you've been enjoying the content on all of the episodes, especially this one here. If you'd like to become a contributor and support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash rugged legacy and click on the support icon. Everyone wants to rise from the ashes, but very few are willing to set themselves on fire. This has been a rugged legacy production.